Welcome to Emmaus Way, everybody, on a nice fall, nice fall Sunday evening. We're going to start with a song by Mark Hurd tonight, called Long Way Down. Babe, they say that this world is better than the last. I wouldn't know, I have no way of living in the past Where once there was a garden, streets of overflow From the golden gates to the east block states You can hear creation groan There is a shining beacon Out across the amber waves Lies hidden on the teeming shores Beneath the burned out Chevrolets and the eyes that scattered high-rise hope across the fruited plain. See the TVs growing and the projects through the greasy window panes. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way to fall. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down. Mountain's majesty has readings that are poor. History bows to coverage, moderation bows to more. The far side of the ocean is the far side of the tracks. All God's children learn to build and learn to watch their backs. There are felons out of the prison yard, imagining their release. And the free thing God for the atom bomb, the keeper of the peace. Another day, another chance to curse away the doubt. Another night, another thousand points to let go out. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way to fall. It's a long, baby, it's a long way down, baby, it's a long, baby, it's a big world after all, of the rain shuttle in the limousine of hate, watching the scenery shudder in the middle draws of fate, well, baby, I'm just another fair. If I thought it would do you some good The diggers and the bankers The architects and fools Got to work and you can't stop them With the bitter tears of golden rules It's a race to stay alive, baby It's lawyers, tax and steal To the life that you are living is The thing you never feel yeah, baby, see that this world is better than the last I wouldn't know I have no way of living in the past Where once there was a garden, whole streets have overflowed From the golden gates to the east block states, you 
you can hear creation grow. Baby, it's long. Baby, it's long waiting. Baby, it's long. Baby, it's a long way to fall. You know that it's a long. Baby, it's a long waiting. Baby, it's a long. Baby, it's a big world after all. Hi, everybody. I'm Tim, and welcome to Emmaus Way this evening. Um, I am really excited about tonight. Uh, if, uh, uh, Nidia Bain is going to be speaking and narrating her story, which is fantastic. I'm truly excited about that. Uh, I saw the music liturgy earlier today, and Mark has outdone himself with choices that are, I think are going to be fantastic. So it's going to be a great night. I'm really excited to see all of you and gather with these uh, dear friends in worship and at the table. I want to turn over to my crew, which got a lot larger in about the last three seconds um, behind me, and we're going to do the community song, which is the, the part of our liturgy that the kids lead, and I can make one guarantee I will not be starting this song <laughs> for your safety, but, uh, oh, Joel's there, so, yeah. Mark, you want to help us, you want to, so I think our, our community song is, uh, is um, the, the Bell Laureate. That's right. I mean, it's a high bar has been set. If you want your song to become the community the, uh, song in a mass way, just put yourself in for the Nobel and we will possibly choose you. But uh, this is forever young and whoever is going to start this. <laughs> Mark, you want to do it for me? Okay. Good job, guys. That was definitely Nobel worthy. Putting you on the list. Fantastic. So again, it's good to see everybody here. Ben, what time is it? It is five ten. It is five ten. How do you feel? Five oh two. So the the Ben Haas reign of timely terror is uh, is continuing with great power here. So uh, which just means we we just do this whole thing in Sunday evenings with a, a better pace. We we get in a sixth song tonight. There's all sorts of benefits of the the five oh two start. Um, we're going to make it to five. Ben will do it. So. <laughs> So a couple quick announcements. Let me first announce Saturday as a part of Durham Can, um, the People's Alliance. 
the NAACP and the uh, Committee for the Affairs of, uh, of Black People in Durham all are collaborating to do a Souls to the Polls, which is going to be a march uh, to uh, the Board of Elections to vote. We're aiming at getting at least 500 people, which we think we can do it. Um, Sarah, what did we promise? Do you, were you there the day we promised uh, 15? Is that right? So we're aiming for 15 people um, from Emmaus Way. This is, and even if Molly said this, and Sarah, I'm in this category too. I'm a Tuesday, November geek out voter. But I want to be there because the, the symbol of this is powerful. The idea that in our state that passed uh, such a stringent voter restriction law, um, it's, it's powerful. to, And this is the very thing that was restricted. Early voting, souls to the polls, weekend voting, all of these things that um, were, were deemed surgically uh, aimed at persons of color and their voting and their, their franchise. So this is a tremendous opportunity for us to stand up with the whole community and demonstrate that part of life in a democracy and certainly the, this divine economy that Jesus talks about involves the engagement of all persons. So we're meeting at First Pres downtown, 9.30. Uh, it's the, the march will start at 10, will be done by, by noon. It will be fun. That I can guarantee you as well. That's forthcoming. Ben, you've got a new thing happening called Wavelength. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so, I mean, you may have noticed this, you may have not. It came up that I could see it briefly. But one thing I'm working on with some other people in the community this, this year is to try and uh, find some good conversations that are happening in Mass Way and make them a little bit more focused and a little bit more broadly available. So we started doing some podcasting of things that are already happening in Mass Way. We did one after a dialogue series in the summer, same thing with the pub group series in the summer. Um, but I want to open up some different spaces as well. Um, one thing we've done a few times in the past is to get together and listen to an album and talk about it. Um, we've done that with a couple of times. It's been very, very... Uh, almost contemplative to sit and listen for 45 minutes and then talk about what we heard. Um, so I think that's a real continuation of what we do, the kind of way we use music, um, how we value music in our community, but an opportunity to do that in a little different way. So we're getting together this Saturday night. It's at my house. Um, we're going to listen to Jason Isbell's Southeastern, probably one of the better storytelling, honest, straight-ahead um, difficult stories that beautifully told albums in the last several years and uh, we're going to do that and podcast it so if you can make it great if not check it out on the podcast but yeah please be a part of that what time again Ben? Eight o'clock at Ben's house. We'll get that out to you guys. This is actually one of the things that's been fantastic. Many of the alums of the Mayus Way community have given us like the word that they are. They love doing the hearing the things that we do on podcasts, not just on Sunday evenings, but pub group, a whole range of things. So uh, our participation in these things is gift, not just to us, but others. Uh, Tim, did you have an announcement? Okay, Metro County. Is it at 6 o'clock this time? 6 o'clock at Watt Street Baptist Church. Okay. It's fall break for UNC, so we may lose a person or two, including me. So that, so if you're interested in Metro Council for CAN, Tim is the person to talk to. We usually like to get two to three people or so, a contingent there, so we can voice in on our pledges for things. So, fantastic. Mark, you ready to lead us in a continuation of our worship liturgy? I wanted to mention, too, uh, as a quick announcement, too, that I believe it's, isn't it Wednesday night that Skylar's playing at the fair? Isn't it Wednesday night? 
So merge record, every, you know, at the NC State Fair, um, every night is like a music, you know, night of some sort. And Wednesday night is, is I think, a merge records night um, where Super Chunk, I think, might be playing. I'm not sure. Okay, yeah. And so Skylar's playing as part of that. If you have been here and seen Skylar or know Skylar, um, she's been wonderful for us to get to know and have here. And so if you're thinking about going to the fair, that would be a good night to go out and see her and support her. And I did not know that. Oh, not at the fair, but at... Okay, cool. Thursday night at the back room? 506. It's an old Tracy Chapman song. Uh, Beautiful song. Uh, Not the easiest song to play and sing at the same time if your name is not Tracy Chapman, but... uh, but this is, a, this is a great song, and hopefully uh, it'll take us in a direction uh, for our dialogue tonight, uh, as the next two or three songs will. get you anywhere Maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero Got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something But me and myself I got nothing to prove You got a fast car And I got a plan To get us out of here Working at a convenience store Managed to save just a little bit of money We won't have to drive too far Just cross the border and into the city You and I can both get jobs we finally see what it means to be living See, my old man's got a problem He lived with a bottle, that's the way it is He said his body's too old for working his body's too young to look like his Her mama went off and left him She wanted more from life than he could give Said somebody's gotta take care of him So I quit school and that's what I did You got a fast car Is it fast enough so we can fly away? We gotta make a decision We leave tonight, I live and die this way Remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed so fast I felt like I was drunk. City lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapping around my shoulder. And I had a feeling that I belonged, and I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. Go cruising, entertain ourselves. You still ain't got a job. I 
working on market as a checkout girl. I know things will get better. You'll find work and I'll get promoted. We'll move out of the shelter and buy a big house and live in the suburbs. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast, I felt like I was drunk. City lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I had a feeling that I belonged. And I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. Got a fast car, and I got a job that pays all our bills. You stay out drinking late at the bar, see more of your friends than you do your kids. I'd always hope for better. All I'm pulling together, you'll be fine. Got no plans, I ain't going nowhere. Just take your fast car and keep on driving. And I remember when we were driving. Driving in your car, speed so fast, I feel like I was drunk. And city lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I had a feeling that I belonged. And I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. So you can fly away. You gotta make a decision. You leave tonight, I live and die this way. intro on these. I know sometimes I'll, I'll talk and, and sort of share where I'm coming from, but for whatever reason, tonight sort of feels like a um, night to let these songs speak for themselves. And there's no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge I'd sleep on a campfire under the bridge The shelter line stretching around the corner Welcome to the new world order Got me sleeping in the cars out in the southwest no job, no peace, no rest The highway is alive tonight Nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire light Searching for the ghost of Tom Joe 
prayer book out of his sleeping bag Future lights up a butt and he takes a track When the last shall be first and the first shall be last In a cardboard box neath the underpass He got a one-way ticket to the promised land With a hole in your belly and a gun in your on a pillow of solid rock Bathing in the city aqueduct The highway is alive tonight And where it's headed everybody knows Sitting down here in the campfire light Waiting on the ghost of Tom Against the blood and hatred in the air Look for me, my, I'll be there With somebody fighting for the place to stand For a decent job or a helping hand For somebody struggling to be free Look in their eyes, my, you'll see Highway is alive tonight. Nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes. I'm sitting down here in the campfire light. With the ghost of old Tom Joe. And the highway is alive tonight. It's kidding nobody about where it goes. Down here in the campfire light With the ghost of old Tom Jones Thank you all so much for those songs of preparation. Um, before we hear from Nydia and hear a bit from you all, our community, um, we are going to pass the peace. So pass the peace with one another, share the love of God with one another, get some snacks, maybe get some coffee. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like there were a lot of weddings this weekend, so I just came back from a wedding, so I might need to get some coffee. Um, but I hope, yeah, pass the peace, and we'll get back in just a few moments. So good to see everyone tonight on this fall. It's finally feeling like fall, but then I looked at the weather and it's supposed to be 80 this coming week, which utterly depressed me. I just am so tired of warm weather. Um, But anyway, probably not as much as the Williams. They probably are more sad about the 80 degree weather. But anyway, enough about the weather. So for the past three weeks, um, we've been looking at the Ethiopian eunuch as our text as we're looking at borderland space and as we have encountered Um, different borderland spaces, 
from baptism to conversation about sexuality in the church um, to last week with Kurt Rhodes looking at Christian-Muslim relations. And tonight we're going to be hearing um, from one of our own, someone our Nidia, um, who understands borderlands quite intimately and is, has been graciously willing to share pieces of her story with us tonight um, so that we can better understand and continue to have a fuller picture of what it means to be a borderland community and what that call really is like. Um, but before we begin hearing Nydia's story, I wanted to hear just from one or two of you quickly, um, because I know these past few weeks we haven't had as much dialogue as we sometimes do, about the text, the Ethiopian eunuch text, and these past three weeks of experiencing different borderlands. What are you processing? What are you thinking about? What's keeping you up at night as you're thinking about the Ethiopian eunuch? What it means to be a borderland community? What's resonating with you? Just one or two folks really quickly. Yeah, Jim. I've been thinking about this in the context of this endless stream of horrific news that we're getting in the campaign. And I begin wrestling with what are the borderlands I don't want to be in dialogue with? Yes. And I don't have a good answer for that, but that's just what's kind of rattling them out of my brain. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's not like all of them. I want to be selective. Um, which ones don't you want to be in dialogue with? Yeah, yeah. and I heard um, this morning I went like extra churchy today. I went to the church that I served in all through Divinity School, Green Street, and I Methodist Church, and Kelly, the pastor there, was preaching on the Good Samaritan, but preached it on this notion, kind of going back to that borderlands, but the Good Samaritan calls us to be in relationship and to cross borders with those we least want to touch. And so kind of in that same way, I, all through the drive back, I was like, huh, there's some borders and borderlands I'm comfortable to enter, but others that are a bit harder. And what does that mean? Thank you. One more. Ethiopian eunuch, anything that's sticking out? It's okay if not. Okay. Well, next week, Tim and I um, want to hear from you pretty much the entire time about the Ethiopian eunuch, what it means to be borderland community. What have you been thinking about, chewing about, chewing on? Um, yeah, where, where is all this connecting with you and as you see yourself being a part of Emmaus Way? So we're really looking forward to that dialogue next week. Um, and be prepared. Your voices will all be heard next week if you want them to be. So Nydia, thank you so much for being with us tonight and sharing a piece of your story. Um, When Tim and I were thinking about Borderland Community, we just really value you and who you are, but also thought it would be inauthentic of us as a community to talk about Borderland spaces and not invite you into this space to share. So thank you for saying yes. But I want to ask you, sort of to start off what I asked the community, when you think about the text of the Ethiopian eunuch, what is one thing that resonates with you out of your own experience of borderlands? More than anything, the, the notion that the Lord told an angel to tell Philip to go meet the eunuch. Um, and that indicates to me that God knew the eunuch's heart and honored his desire to be in relationship with him. Um, and... At the same time, God knew the, the totality of who the eunuch was, you know, his race, his gender, 
his nationality, and none of those prevented him from being accepted into God's kingdom and being baptized. And that reminds me of the verses in Ephesians 2, verses 18 and 19, that says, For through Christ we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of God's household. It's comforting to me to know that I'm fully accepted by God as a legitimate member of his family and have equal standing before him regardless of my country of origin, my gender, or my race. Um, you know, while God is aware of all the layers that make up an individual, he strips all that away and comes to meet us in the space that we may find ourselves in. Thanks. And so some of us here may know... Um, a bit about your story, but this notion of being fully known and accepted for all of your identities and parts of yourself really resonated with you in the Ethiopian eunuch. And so for those of us that maybe don't know as much or want to know more, I would really love it if you would share about the multiple borderlands that you occupy um, that are a part of your being. And I'd love it if you would start with some physical borderlands um, out of your narrative and what that experience has been like for you. What I'm about to share is deeply personal. And um, I read a Facebook post today that said, you know, sometimes memories come to my eyes and roll down my face. So you may be seeing some memories on my face today. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to probably read most of what I wanted to say because I want to Remember all the things that I I think are worth mentioning. Okay. If you ask me who I am, I will say I'm Mexican. But that is not fully accurate. I say I'm Mexican because I was born in Sinaloa, Mexico, to Mexican parents. Yet, I have grown up in the U.S. since the age of six. And I cannot deny that living in the U.S. has impacted my sense of identity. My family and I have a complicated relationship with the U.S., When my father was a child, my grandfather came to the U.S. by himself on several occasions for three to six months at a time under the Bracero program. The Bracero program was named for the Spanish term meaning manual laborer. It was a series of agreements established in 1942, which opened the door to the legal immigration of Mexican workers to fill the labor shortage in agriculture during World War II. The program lasted 22 years and offered employment contracts to 5 million braceros in 24 U.S. states, becoming the largest foreign worker program in U.S. US history. Each time my grandfather crossed into the U.S., he worked the time under the contract and returned home to his his family in Sinaloa. When the bracero program ended in 1964, people kept coming back to work, but this time without documentation. As long as there was demand for Mexican laborers, supply would follow. When Mexican people speak of going to the U.S., they refer to it as heading to the other side, al otro lado. In most of the Southwest, it refers to the place that was created by a man-made boundary, an arbitrary division over what is otherwise a long stretch of homogeneous land that has no natural dividing point. 
Shortly, I was bo- shortly after I was born, we went to live with my grandparents. Seeing that there was little work to be found in Mexico following an economic recession in the early 70s, my father ventured out to work as a migrant farm laborer in the U.S. He hitchhiked his way to the U.S.-Mexico border, then stowed away on freight trains destined for Arizona. Once deep in Arizona, he waited until he saw an agricultural area and got off the train, then proceeded to ask for work at nearby ranches or fields. He traveled light and likely depended on the generosity of strangers in the early days. The work was not well paid, but it was certainly more than what he could earn had he found work in Mexico. His initial trip to the U.S. lasted three months. He came home for two weeks, then headed back to the U.S. The next trips lasted six months, then nine months, each time for longer stretches. Seeing the trend that was developing, my mother decided that if we continued like this, the family was going to disintegrate. So with a heavy heart, she packed a suitcase and made her way to the U.S. with a two-year-old and an infant in tow. At that time, the border was more porous. With a chain-link fence dividing the two sides and only for a couple miles from the crossing station. Every so often, holes had been cut in the chain-link fence where people had used it to cross illegally. Once on the other side, it was easy to blend in. You see, the possession of legal status is the major difference that separates the Mexican people that live on the U.S. side of the border. Otherwise, it's hard to tell the difference simply by outside appearances. In Arizona, my father had reunited with an old acquaintance from his hometown who had legal U.S. status. It just so happened that he and his wife had children born in the U.S. of our same ages. They agreed to attempt to reunite my family by having us cross the border in their car as if my brother and I were their children. My mom was to cross the border fence illegally and meet up with them at a prearranged meeting point. The plan was a success, and thus I arrived in Arizona for the first time at the age of two. The feelings of isolation and loneliness, compounded by the distance from family support, was too much for my mother. So after three months, we headed back to Sinaloa. Since work in Arizona had dried up, my father headed out to Oregon to work picking cherries in the summer, followed by apple picking in Washington State in the fall. Later, he returned to Mexico to convince my mom to try life in the U.S. again. Our brief time together in Arizona produced another baby, and now there were three children to bring across. So we made the 12-hour trip from Sinaloa to Sonoita, Mexico, accompanied by my dad's younger brother. Our second attempt at crossing the border would be done on foot, through a portion of the desert, and my father would wait for us in a car at a designated point further up the road in the U.S., Since we were in a remote desert area, the odds of a a successful border crossing were better. And under the cover of night, we walked into the desert following the instructions given to us by people who knew the path to the U.S. My uncle carried our suitcase and led my five-year-old self by the hand. My mother carried my infant sister and my now three-year-old brother. We had not gone very far when I heard the sound of a helicopter and saw a bright bright spotlight sweeping across the desert looking for moving bodies. 
Before we knew it, the spotlight focused down on us. I felt something brush against my leg and let out a piercing scream. Hearing my alert, my uncle dropped the suitcase and quickly pulls me up. My mom tells me that what I felt was a snake that was about to bite me, but my uncle's quick reflexes saved me in the nick of time. In all that chaos, the Border Patrol caught up to us and took us into custody. My uncle was detained the longest, but we were all sent to San Luis, Mexico within a day. There, my father had a distant relative, and he had arranged it so that we could stay with her as a fallback plan if we were intercepted. We stayed with her a couple months until my mom recovered from the ordeal and another plan could be developed. She later told me that she was very scared and traumatized by that night. After several months, a Mexican-American friend of my father's who had three children close to our ages offered to bring us across the border in her car using her children's birth certificates. We were to cross at the border station that was right up against a city park on the U.S. side and was followed by a strip mall. It was a common practice to pay someone to cause a scene or create a diversion to distract the border patrol agents while people attempted to cross illegally through the holes in the chain link fence near the city park. And on the day my siblings and I crossed by car, my mom made it over the fence when the border agents were distracted by a diversion created by somebody. For a couple minutes, she sat on a park bench as if she was enjoying the sunny day then proceeded to make her way to the shopping center as as if she was going in to shop. Then my dad's friend was parked at the shopping center, ready to pick us up, and we were reunited. We drove north three hours to meet up with my dad in our new home in El Mirage, Arizona. That small immigrant town outside of Phoenix became my hometown. We blended well in El Mirage since most people looked like us. Some were of Mexican descent, but had been in the U.S. for many generations, while others were new arrivals like us. Spanish could be heard spoken everywhere, and if someone was having a celebration or a get-together, Mexican music could be heard throughout the neighborhood. At school, I felt a sense of belonging, partly because the the ethnic composition of my school district was 90% Mexican-American, 5% Anglo, and 5% African-American. I grew up surrounded by citrus groves and verdant fields that produced cotton, roses, onions, and watermelon. We lived in the shadows as undocumented people. I was unaware of this as a child, but in the dark corner of my, father, of my parents' minds lurked the threat of being found out, deported, and separated from each other or their children. We did not return to Mexico for many years, communicating with relatives through mailed letters that were old news by the time they reached their intended recipient. When my mom's father died in a car accident, my mom was unable to to attend his funeral. Going home to comfort her family carried the possibility of being separated from her children indefinitely, since crossing the border legally had grown riskier and more dangerous with the passing of time. Relief from our precarious condition came in 1986, when President Ronald Reagan signed immigration reform that gave amnesty to three million undocumented immigrants in the country. My family and I were legalized because of that amnesty. And I received my permanent residence at the age of 14. 
Once the required five years of permanent residency were completed, I filed to become a, nat a naturalized citizen and became an American citizen my sophomore year of college. You're probably thinking, why would anyone risk so much to go to a place where they're not wanted? There's no simple answer, but in our case, it was because the future in Mexico looked bleak and my parents were willing to leave behind their safe space and all that they had known to offer us a, more than a hard scrabble life. They wanted us to have the opportunities and dreams that were not within reach for them in their country of origin. Thanks so much um, for sharing so vividly your experience of crossing the border and living in a borderland town and how that so shaped you. Um, but we are more than just the physical borders and spaces that we encounter. And so I'm curious, how have these borderlands, the physical borderlands, um, but other borderlands um, that you have encountered and are a part of you, played into your cultural realities, your understanding and identity? Um, how have they shaped you into who you are? For most of my life, I felt like I'm on the edge of two worlds, never quite being a full citizen of either one. I'm often challenged to pick a side, Mexican or American, as if the two identities cannot coexist in one individual. I live in the space between, the place where at any point in time, I'm not 100% of either one, and have come to conf conform to occupy the space allotted to me. And unfortunately, sometimes I feel like part of me has to be left behind to function or be accepted in a new space. I rarely feel that I am free to bring my whole self. The critique from Latino friends and family has been, for the most part, that I'm not Mexican enough or acting too white. This is partly because life forces have caused me to act in ways that are not traditionally attributed to Mexican women. I challenge patriarchy. <laughs> I'm fiercely independent and driven. Somewhere early in my childhood, I adopted the mantra, the rules don't apply to me. <laughs> when I got married, I didn't drop my maiden name, but instead added on my husband's na last name. It didn't help my, help my cause that I married an Anglo and not within my race. But in my defense, I was attracted to Brandon because of his keen cultural sensibilities and because sometimes his heart beats more Mexican than mine. I chose career in, careers in industries not, typ not typical for women, first in high-tech and engineering and later in financial services. In college, I was made to feel that I had to choose between belonging to a Latino social support group or a Christian fellowship group, which was mostly white, because in the eyes of my Latino friends, Protestant, Protestantism, Protestantism <laughs> is a white man's religion. Apparently, this sensation of a fragmented identity has existed for as long as different cultures have encountered one another. I was pleasantly surprised that the Aztecs used a Nahuatl word, neplanta, to capture this notion. Neplanta means in the middle of it, or middle. Neplanta is a concept used often in Chicano and Latino anthropology, social commentary, criticism, literature, and art. It represents the in-between culture that indigenous people created when they were conquered by the Spanish. 
the new world that they inhabited was made up of parts of both cultures. Because only portions of each culture are adopted, it can create a feeling of rootlessness and a lack of social acceptance and connection. To quote a popular, popular Mexican saying, ni de aquí, ni de allá. I'm not from here, nor from there. In, soci in sociology, there's a term called third culture kids, which refers to anyone who is raised outside of their parents' culture for a significant part of their developmental years. This includes children of immigrants, indigenous groups, and missionary kids. A third culture kid who is a child of an immigrant deals with their own set of racism and stereotypes. This creates a new cultural group that does not fall into the home or host culture, but rather share a culture with all other third culture kids. Third culture individuals can also be refer referred to as cultural hybrids, cultural chameleons, and global nomads. The mixture of influences from the various cultures that the individual has lived in can create challenges in developing an identity as well as with a sense of belonging. I finally understand the source of my, my conflict, conflicted identity. If I seem guarded and hard to get to know when you first encounter me, it's because I'm keenly aware of the prejudices that are attached to the labels I wear and don't want to be misunderstood. If you sense social detachment, it is because I'm an introvert and the effect is compounded by the notion that neither side, Mexican nor American, embraces me fully. And so I keep my distance. To conclude, I want to celebrate the superpowers that come from my hybrid identity by quoting Gloria Ansaldúa, a Chicana author, cultural theorist, and feminist philosopher. Living between cultures results in seeing double, first from the perspective of one culture, then from the perspective of another. Seeing from two or more perspectives simultaneously renders those cultures transparent. Removed from that culture's center, you glimpse the sea in which you've been immersed, but to which you were oblivious, no longer seeing the world the way you were enculturated to see it. I am slowly learning to live in this in-between space that embodies a third culture and seeing myself for its rich and sometimes painful, beautiful pieces. I will answer if called Mexican-American, Chicana, Latina, and every so often, Chingona. That last label is not a word that's appropriate to say in church, so look up its <laughs> translation later. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that one up. <laughs> Nidia, thank you for so honestly and clearly articulating um, the joys and pain of being both Mexican and American and this identity of living between and often feeling guarded, misunderstood, um, out of place. And so I kind of want to end with you sharing wisdom for us what is one thing, out of, or perhaps more than one thing, you wish that those who encountered you as a child, a teenager, a college student, a young adult, um, continue to encounter you and those like you who are living in worlds of in-between, living in the borderlands? What is it that you wish we would know? 
Living in this in-between space can be lonely, emotionally draining, and mentally exhausting. The best way to meet me in this space is to take the initiative to know about the events and actions that form people like me. Please don't ask us to teach you or lead you in the discovery because we're already burdened enough by some of the, the things that happen in our lives. It's okay to ask us about our thoughts and feelings, but when we share, be kind and don't attack, dismiss, or discount our experience. Um, you know, just as Christina Cleveland shared with us when she was here a while ago, when we find ourselves in a majority culture, we need to stop expecting people to adapt to our culture or meet us in the place where we're comfortable, you know, the place that is our own turf. Since we're born with an innate yearning to know and be known, walking with someone in their journey is the best way to have a shared life experience. Entering into their reality from their vantage point. And the key is the concept of walking with. Not in front, not behind, but side by side. Whenever possible, advocate for the other. It can be as simple as challenging your own notions about a subject or challenging the statements made by someone in your circle of influence. Another way is to join a cause that helps to further understanding or improve someone's well-being. For example, my mother-in-law, an introverted, suburban, middle-class, middle-aged Anglo woman, was a juror in a criminal case where a Latino teenager participated in a drive-by shooting in Oklahoma. When the trial was completed and the teenager was sent to prison, she felt that justice had not been served. She channeled her frustration with the, with the justice system in a positive way by befriending the teenager's family and becoming part of his support system and his advocate while he served his time. In the process, I imagine she came to see the various forces that created the unfortunate outcome and proceeded to intervene in small ways to improve the lives of other Latina kids or Latino kids in her neighborhood. She stretched beyond her safe space, challenged her notions of justice, and entered into the cultural world of her protege's family. In many ways, she was changed and challenged by the experience and ultimately fostered peace, hope, and justice in the encounter. If you're interested in understanding the history of Latinos in the, U in the United States, I highly recommend you watch several films. I think of it as a way to get the cliff notes on 500 years of history. <laughs> PBS has been airing a document documentary series titled Latino Americans in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month. There's also a 70s film titled Alambrista. It's a little bit dated, but it gives a fairly accurate portrayal of the life of an undocumented Mexican, uh, a Mexican immigrant who comes to work as a farm laborer in the U.S. And unfortunately, the U.S. has a long history of drawing in Mexicans when their labor is desired, then treating them as disposable beings when the political tide turns. As Gail Thomas can probably attest, the practice of bringing Mexicans to the U.S. as contract manual laborers is alive and well even to this day, especially in North Carolina. Thank you for letting me share my experience and for entering into this space with me. Nydia, thank you so much. Um, 
for braving vulnerability and sharing her narrative with us um, as we at a, as we Emmaus Way claim to be a borderland community honest reflections and articulations like yours is what helps us work toward more fully becoming an inclusive space that is open and hospitable that is a space of transformative encounter for all so thank you and you're reminding us i loved this that it is in walking with someone in their journey entering into their reality from their vantage point not ours not walking in front, not behind, but side by side, just like I imagine Philip doing when he entered the eunuch's chariot, is the space we must continually remember to be about and to be nudged toward. You reminded us that it is in walking and loving someone wholly for who they are that closes the gap. It works toward removing dislocation and thus, I think by entering the borderlands, we are consciously asking God to deliver us from isolation from our sisters and from our brothers, from a lack of, to deliver us from a lack of trust of the other. And instead, we are asking God to move us into awareness and recognition that so many live lives in liminality and isolation, places they should not walk alone, for those very places are where we are called as borderland community. And because of your narrative and your sharing tonight, we were more fully able to realize that. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and I would encourage all of you, as we continue to think about borderlands, and I've had four really powerful weeks of different encounter um, just be thinking about and meditating on what does this mean for you and your life? What does this mean for us as a community claiming to be a borderland people? And what does this mean in the context of this Ethiopian eunuch text that continues to hold us and captivate us? And come back next week with your thoughts and reflections. Thank you so much. And Mark? And Dan, take it away. Our song of confession uh, tonight uh, is a song that I was first introduced to the idea. I, I, Brandon, actually, Nadia's husband, Brandon told me um, a few months ago, like, you need to check this song out. We need to do this song sometime. Um, and so it got filed away somewhere for me, but, but not really listened to or prepared for yet. Um, and then Caleb actually told me recently, about a month ago, said independently, he didn't know Brandon, and so he said, you gotta, you gotta listen to this song, you gotta do this song sometime. And so, knowing that Nidia was speaking tonight, I was like, this is a great chance to do it. Um, so I listened to it last night at about 10 o'clock last night for the first time. <laughs> and I listened to it and said, we have to do this song, which means I have to figure out how to play it and learn it, but, um, but I don't know tons about the song, but Brandon does, and so I'm gonna have Brandon tell us a little bit about it um, as I sort of prepare. Yeah, so this is by uh, Annalise Mitchell, but it's really actually by her and collection of folks, uh, Justin Berger, Berger, Golden Bear, and Andy Gabranco, and others who created this folk opera called 80s Town, based around the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, this Greek story in which Eurydice dies, having fallen into the pit of vipers, and is taken down to Hades by Hades and Persephone. Orpheus sets out to 
her back to the world of play. And I actually don't know, I mean, I don't know what Anais was thinking with this song. Um, but if you read it, I think these themes of building the walls, in, in, in the case of that map between the underworld and the outer world, you can think of this as Mexico and the US in the story that we just heard. And why do we build the wall? We build the wall to keep us free, keep out the enemy, keep out poverty. And, um, so I think, I think these themes are resonant. I don't know if that's what she had in mind writing it, uh, but certainly resonant with the story of her, uh, as well as uh, the mess that, that go deep into history, right? Uh, creating the and the sacrifices that we might make to preserve um, our own love. free my children my children how does the wall keep us free how does the wall keep us free the wall keeps out the enemy and we build the wall to keep us free that's why we build the wall build a wall to keep us free who do we call the enemy my children children who do we call the call the enemy, the enemy is poverty, and the wall keeps out the enemy, and we build the wall to keep us free, that's why we build the wall, build the wall to keep us free. Because we have and they have not, my children, my children, because they want what we've got. Because we have and they have not, because they want what we have got. The enemy is poverty, and the wall keeps out the enemy. And we build the wall to keep us free, that's why we build the wall, build the wall to keep us free. What do we have that they should want, my children, my children? What do we have that they should want? What do we have that they should want? We have a wall to work upon. We have work and they have none. And our work is never done, my children, my children. And the war is never won The enemy is poverty And the wall keeps out the enemy And we build the wall to keep us free That's why we build the wall We build the wall to keep us free We build the wall to keep us free
in looking at uh, two identities, uh, two people trying to understand one another. Uh, this is a song that I think uh, pledges uh, two people who are on opposite sides of an argument, maybe, or opposite sides of identities, trying to struggle and figure out how do we, how do we come together uh, and work together through this relationship. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You say one love, one life. But it's one need. To share it leaves you, baby, if you don't care for it. Or did I disappoint you? Or leave a bad taste in your mouth? You act like you never had love Now you want me to go without Too late Tonight To drag the past out into the light And But we're not the same We get to carry each other Carry each other Have you come here for forgiveness? To raise the dead Have you come here to play Jesus To the lepers in your head And I ask too much More than a lot You gave me nothing now That's all I got We're one But we're not the same Where we Hurt each other, then we do it again. You say, Love is a temple, love the higher love. Love is a temple, love the higher love. You ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. And I can't be holding on to what you got when all you got is hurt. Oh, 
to carry each other, carry each other This week, felt like we needed to do one of one of his songs. I guess we already did the children's song, but but I also think of this as like an extra song of absolution because to me, like this song, uh, this song really speaks to finding liberation, um, finding finding freedom, but but more than that, finding liberation from chains that have uh, that have sort of held us back. Um, I, I recorded an album a, a few years ago that I've never actually released, but the, the final song that I had on the album uh, was was a cover of this song because uh, this to me felt like the the ending of one story and the beginning of another story. Um, so I, I just I just love this one. It's called Chimes of Freedom. Far between sundown's finish and midnight's broken toll, he ducked inside the doorway, thunder crashing. As majestic bells of bolts struck shadows in the sound. Tolling for the 
mistreated Mateless mother Mistitled prostitute And for the misdemeanor outlaw Chased and cheated by pursuit He gazed upon the chimes of freedom So um, one of the things, there's always been kind of a rhythm to the worship at Emmaus Way. Uh, I don't know when we started this. This was years and years and years ago uh, in our first year or two when we, we thought about how do we tell the story of the table and how do we, and it was actually kind of a, a, a little invention that we had is, wow, uh, what if we put the, the invitation to the table in, um, in another voice? And that would accentuate this central move in our worship of coming to the table. And so we tried that, and it seemed powerful and real. And one of the things that we've done, and, and done really well for a long, long time, is, um, 
in our music, um, in the liturgies that we've done, in our speaking, and in our dialoguing, we have been really comfortable complicating things, right? Uh, Because one of the real senses that we've always had is for people to be worshipers, to, to live in the gospel. They needed to be dislodged from spaces of comfort. Those might be racial spaces, they might be socioeconomic spaces, they might be, uh, and more often than not, theological spaces that were created on top of racial and social and economic <laughs> spaces. So we, we thought that was really important, that we would kind of dislodge people, and then we would often use the, the table invitation as, uh, in some ways, the preaching of Emmaus Way. It was a, an opportunity to, uh, though we'd done hard work to kind of move us from comfortable spaces, we would, we would preach, we would invite each other to this open open table every every uh, week, and as that developed into something that was a powerful reality, not a symbol, but a practice for us, we we had an opportunity to kind of live the gospel out. Uh, tonight's a little more complicated for me to invite you to the table because you've had the gospel preached so powerfully for the last uh, 75 minutes or so. Uh, you've had it in, in, in song and in word and liturgy and in question, and, and it's been a powerful gospel, and in many ways it's a, a rationale of why do people... Why does a people, us, why would we desire to locate ourselves in border spaces? Because um, what uh, Nydia said today, in, in a way that very few of us could say, but some of you, but, but a lot of folks like myself can't say very easily, is that the, the story of Christianity, the story of our theology, the story of church, especially in our culture, has been so deeply lodged in comfortable space. Uh, the the uh, the overriding question that defines so many things are what are the traditions that make me feel comfortable? What are the traditions and the ways and the things of worship that in some ways uh, define me and make me feel comfortable as a, a follower of God? And and that's a horrible, difficult, challenging legacy to to move ourselves out of when our comfort is in many ways the exclusion of so many. And I've said in so many church meetings through the years, not here, but years of where people might have gotten an argument about a worship style or a, something like that where somebody would have just said, you know, you know what, I just don't know that we could do um, that kind of music because it, it just makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, and, and when it was said, you know, 90% of the people in the room just nodded their heads and said, my goodness, I mean, discomfort. Surely that couldn't be part of the gospel. That couldn't be part of the tradition we're following. And, and of course, when you are authoring that tradition, uh, you get to name what is real and meaningful and good. And, and what Nydia said tonight was a powerful reminder for us to not make the border exotic or romantic. There was nothing exotic, there was nothing romantic about the stories of her crossings. I don't think a person in the room said, oh, I wish I could have been doing that. What a great story that would be to tell our kids or to write down somewhere. It was dangerous. It was frightening. And um, Nidia, what's that great word for in-betweenness? The, yeah, yeah. Neplanta is not this beautiful creative, dynamic, mysterious space alone. It's all of those things, but it's fraught with, with danger. 
It's fraught with that sense of in-betweenness. And I would suspect that all of us in some way have that sense of in-betweenness. Maybe for some of you it's describing to your family why you worship in a church like Emmaus Way that sings... Bob Dylan songs, or for some of you, it might be uh, um, a, a theological concept that you're not as comfortable with here, but you hear said oftenly, and you continue to dialogue with and engage. And, and so that in-between space is a space that has peril. It has danger. It has fear. It has this sense of not being able to identify yourself clearly. And that's one of the things that so resonated with me with the story tonight is kind of who am I? What am I? It's always easy when you have an elevator speech or a simple tagline that everyone is comfortable with when you give that answer. And so here you are in this community that's aspiring to set aside that kind of comfort and locate ourselves in a space, a dislodged space, an in-between space. But and I don't need to say it, but as you heard Nydia say it and Mark sing it and, and Molly ask about it tonight, didn't it sound like the gospel? Didn't it sound like the crazy things that Jesus said that when he looked at comfortable families and he said, who's my, my mother and who's my brother and who's my sister? It's not the people that have been defined by society as such, but it's the people that have been formed in my gospel narrative. And so this is in some ways the frightening beauty of what we're aspiring to do as a community. And uh, the next several weeks, next week, um, Molly said this well, we imagine kind of in our organizing language next week to be a listening session. Molly and I are going to sit up front and we're going to do everything we can to bait you into speaking about what you think about this kind of borderlands invitation that we've offered to you. We want to hear that. What does it mean for you? And then in two weeks, I'm going to interview Molly um, and ask her as one who is our leader in the future and our pastor and one who will do great work in terms of forming us as a community. What do you think we can be? Who can we be? What, what can we aspire to do? But Nydia's story tonight reminds us that comfort is not part of the conversation for us. Is that the, the discussion of imagining being a borderlands community means for many of us becoming unsettled. It means imagining realities that we've not considered before. It means living in an in-between space. Now, of course, we have huge theological resources to talk about that, right? Uh, you may have come from a, a tradition that talked about already and not yet and all sorts of things that the gospel locates us not perfectly in the world that we live in, because the gospel is always imagining, always aspiring, always hoping for something that is better and more beautiful and beyond and more just. And the gospel always says we're not allowed to be comfortable. And the gospel challenges us very painfully that when we start authoring what the gospel is, because my authoring of the gospel is making me more comfortable, more normal, more in, uh, that's when we're slipping off the rails of what the gospel is. So in many ways, that's our invitation that we're excited to live in with you, is jettisoning that sense of, of authoring our own existence and naming our identity in the way that some people would be in and some people would be out. And this is really the racial narrative of the Christian church is that uh, we are products of a, a colonialism and a history, especially in the, in the West um, and a certain portion 
portion of the West where we created things like racial scales. And we told people that the movement toward whiteness is always the best move, whether that's theologically, whether it's sexually, whether it's with our bodies, whether it's with beauty. Whiteness always defined what it meant to be more Christian from a certain perspective. And, uh, and what you see so often is these racial descriptors reinforced so powerfully by Christian theology. And we're subverting that in many ways. We, we, we are saying, what, can it, what would it mean if we locate ourselves in a gospel that doesn't always work first for our comfort, but aspires only, always, for what could be more beautiful, more just, and better. And of course, as I look around the room, all of you have been deeply implicated in those type of activities. And so we're excited about the next couple weeks of listening to you next week, interviewing Molly in two weeks about what could we do? What could we be together? Where could we go? And hopefully the words of Nydia will echo strongly for us that this borderland calling that we've given to you is not a romantic calling. It's a beautiful calling. It's not a safe calling, but it is a, it's a sacred calling in many ways. And this week, as we do every week, we come to the table, we serve each other, we look each other in the eye, we break bread, we pour wine and juice for each other. We do that in the practice of no one being excluded. So our open table in itself, in a world that always compares and always excludes, is something entirely different. It's a border experience for us. So I invite you now to the table to break bread, to pour wine and juice for each other, to offer each other the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and to enter into our weekly Borderland experience. And we look forward to continuing this in subsequent weeks. And a huge thank you for Nydia for, for truly telling an incredibly personal story. It's gift. You've shared it to us, and, and we're formed by that story. So thank you very, very, very much. Join us at the table.